The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Support for this show comes from best-selling author and master energy healer, Carol Tuttle, and Dressing Your Truth, the effortless makeover program that unveils true, beautiful you to the world. Experience your life-changing transformation at DressingYourTruth.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today is Dr. Damon Tweedy. Dr. Tweedy is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Duke University Medical Center and a staff physician at the Durham VA Medical Center. He's published numerous articles on race and medicine in the Journal of American Medical Association and the Annals of Internal Medicine. And his new book, Black Man in a White Coat, A Doctor's Reflections on Race and Medicine, is reviewed in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Dr. Tweedy, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. I read the book. It's sitting right here in front of me. It was fascinating to read what you have to say about your experiences. And at the same time, I kept going, why didn't I know this? Why didn't I ever think of this? Because it really shouldn't be. What's the main message you'd like readers to get from this? So I think education is a real big piece of it, just being aware of these issues. So really the book is covering two themes. You know, One is this theme of the health problems of the African-American community and so sort of the disproportionate health problems. And the term I use in the book is that being black can be bad for your health. And so that's one big theme of the book. And the second big piece of the book is just this idea of me being an African-American doctor and a medical student and now a doctor and what that experience is like and how it's different in many ways from other doctors in terms of the perception that the staff has of me, patients have me as well. So really interweaving those two themes is really the crux of the book. So, you know, I can understand how being a black man in medical school where, you know, you're certainly a minority as the book explores and the difficulties of that and how people look at you, maybe actually how they look at you still as you're working in these various hospitals, medical centers. But when I think of medicine, I, and I'm wrong, and you really opened my eyes to this, but when I think of medicine, I want to think of sort of neutral science. There's just facts and you explore them and you apply them. And race, gender should have nothing to do with it. Now, I realize that's incredibly naive. So let's go back to this phrase that you offer in the book. I mean, these incredibly powerful eight words, being black can be bad for your health. So you mean that in several ways. Let's unpack that a little bit. You know, when I started medical school, I sort of had that same sort of attraction to the field of medicine, this idea that you know, so much of the outside world with race is very messy and unfair and all those sorts of things, but the allure to medicine was objective. The science that you learn in college, you learn formulas, equations, things that are very objective. So that was sort of the appeal to me, but then you get to medical school and you learn about the various diseases. You know, in the beginning of medical school, you learn about diabetes, high blood pressure, all the sorts of different diseases that you can imagine. And they start off talking about the science of it, the physiology of it, and things of that sort. But then you go into the sort of the social aspect of it. Who's affected more? And you always hear black people are more likely to get the disease and they have worse outcomes. And so the question was why? And early in medical school, I wasn't getting these answers. And the book, in many ways, uses my experiences as a young doctor to explore all the factors that go into it. So what are some of the major ones with high blood pressure or diabetes that impact the African-American community more than other communities? Yeah, and those diseases are just two examples because they're very common. But, I mean, really anything that you can think of, different types of cancer, kidney disease, basically anything you can think of, these same descriptions would apply. 
And I think there are many reasons. And so I think of it in terms of like three different layers. Some people will look at it a little bit differently. But the first layer is just looking at the differences in society in terms of issues like access to medical care, being able to see a doctor, being able to see a primary care doctor, being able to see a specialist, being in communities that are segregated and sort of cut off from lots of other things that many of us take for granted. It's a huge factor. Also, just not having health insurance. Many African-Americans are about 60% more likely to be uninsured. And if even black people do have health insurance, they're more likely to have Medicaid or public insurance. And there's all sorts of sort of disparities that are set up between having that kind of insurance versus private insurance. And so in the book, I use real examples to sort of illustrate these kind of complicated, abstract concepts. So for instance, early medical school, I traveled to a charity clinic about 90 minutes from campus. And there is like an eastern part of North Carolina, very rural, the community is probably 50-50 black-white, but the patients there were all black in this sort of community clinic. Actually, not a clinic, it's like a one-room house. You're really just trying to make do, provide really substandard care. What I found when you got there, the patients have no normal problems you would see in an ordinary medical setting, but you couldn't prescribe medications for them because they didn't have insurance, they couldn't afford the medicines. You wanted or a test that you would get in a medical setting, but you couldn't get the lab test because the patients couldn't afford the test. You couldn't get follow-up results. All these barriers that you take for granted that never happen in sort of the ordinary scope of medical practice. And it's all disproportionately impacts black people. So that's sort of the first piece. But then there are other layers that the book talks about as well. So I would say the second layer is this issue between the doctor and the patient. And the relationship that you had there, because medicine is still an art and there's still a lot of subjective aspects to it. As much as we want to make it seem like it's purely objective, the person has a certain set of symptoms, and how you interpret them can depend upon how you care with that patient. In some cases, the doctor may have a bias towards the patient, and it can go the other way where the patient has a misperception of the doctor's intent. And so you have these issues that come up, and this often, again, will be to the detriment of African-American patients because we have a really unfortunate history in, in terms of medicine and race, in terms of how African-Americans have been treated. So often there's a mistrust on the part of African-American patients, even in our modern times, and that really impacts healthcare as well. So can you give us some background on that? As far as this whole piece with the doctor and the patient, 50 years ago, we still had segregated care. It seems like a long time ago, but really in the span of history, that's really not very long at all. Many people are still alive and are sort of passing on that uh, fear and history in a way to a younger generation. And so, for instance, you know, hospitals are segregated, really separate and unequal. And particularly in the South, you have this, these issues still happening. There's also, of course, during this time, there's a famous experiment called the Tuskegee Experiment. Now, that's really just one experiment, and that's one people tend to hear most about, but that's really sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of this issue. But in that particular experiment, they were basically the experimenters knew that they had syphilis, did not inform the African-American men in the study, even though treatments were available. So that's really, by a contemporary standard, it seems like a really horrible, unethical study. This occurred from like 1940 to 1972, so a long time period. And so what happens now in modern times is that there's still a memory of these kind of issues and mistreatment, if you will. And, and there are a lot of other examples that aren't quite as famous that sort of illustrate these same problems. And so often you'll see an African-American patient nowadays where, you know, they're coming to the clinic, they're being treated for diabetes or high blood pressure, and they're often concerned or skeptical of whether or not the treatment they're receiving is actually the appropriate treatment. I've heard people say, well, is the treatment you would give for a white patient. You hear those kind of comments. And then that's a pretty stark illustration of sort of lingering problems that we have. And there's no doubt that that uh, influences health as well. So do you run into that as a black doctor? Would they say that to you? It can be complicated. Yeah, I mean, you know, in some ways things are better, but I mean, because of this whole legacy of separate and unequal, what you see is that there's some black people who will kind of internalize this feeling that something is associated with a black person, it may be worse, right? So 
there may be cases where there there been a couple of examples where I've been, black patients have been skeptical of me as a black doctor, like, wow, you know, this guy, I'd, I'd rather see someone else, kind of thing. Now that's become less and less as I've gotten older and more experienced. And what's actually happened is it sort of turned the other direction, and people are actually often more accepting of the fact that uh, seeing someone of their same you know racial background and maybe they share more of their same experience. But right. early in my career, that was a concern. What was their concern? They would rather see a white physician. Yeah, there was a perception that anything that's associated with black people, because there was this segregated system that's set up in society, people can internalize this idea that anything that's associated with black people is less than what's associated with white people. And so and that can include doctors or business people or lawyers or whatever. So there was certainly that sort of mindset that often was, was present, particularly in the past. I would say as times have gone on and people are a little bit more familiar with African-American people being successful, and also as I get older and, and people have a... Um, certain authority attached to that, it's become more of an asset rather than a hindrance in terms of identity with African-American patients. Okay, so let's just go back for a second to your statement, being black can be bad for your health. So what you've been talking about so far is more sociology than physiology. What about physiologically? Are African-Americans more prone to, like, for example, Jewish people in Tay-Sachs or something like that? Sure, sure. Well, yeah, so for instance, like the African-Americans with sickle cell anemia, that's sort of the classic disease right. where African-Americans are more prone on a genetic basis. And that's been widely known for, you know, decades and decades. So that's not anything that's new, and that's a really small subset of the health problems that African-Americans face. It's a very rare disease. But even within things like high blood pressure, I think there's probably some potential slight biological risk of increased high blood pressure. But, you know, the thing about that is that genetics, in a case like that, genetics is not destiny. And so the far bigger issue is the social, cultural issues. I was diagnosed with high blood pressure myself as a young person. But through diet, into really making really serious dietary changes and sort of coming to grips with cultural aspects of diet, I've been able to manage my blood pressure without, you know, medications at all and just have a completely normal blood pressure. So even if you do have a slight genetic predisposition, that certainly doesn't destine you or preordain you to be sick. But so I think the far bigger issue are these, you know, social and cultural economic issues that really being black can be bad for your health is really, that's the crux of it. There's also this issue with doctors and patients. I talked about the issues of black patients sort of being mistrustful of doctors, but there's also this piece where doctors themselves can have sort of subtle biases towards African-American patients. They're not intending to necessarily cause harm or anything. I wouldn't say that at all, but there can be cases where preconceptions about African-Americans' ability to do certain things can certainly impact decisions that doctors would make about tests and treatments. And these things certainly can play out and, and cause problems as well. So can you give us a concrete example of where the doctor's bias might impact the treatment that an African-American receives? A simple example might be something like a couple of actually I write about in the book. So one is an example of a patient who was like in his mid-50s and he had came into the hospital with chest pain, you know, really common way for someone to come to the hospital. And, and once he did the usual things where you make sure he doesn't have a heart attack, and then the next step is you want to order some tests and give him some medications to help prevent these issues from coming back. In this particular case, the doctors wanted to give him high blood pressure medicine, but then the patient wanted to really try to change his diet and exercise first, which is a really a reasonable thing to do. But I think the doctors had really low expectations of what African-American patients could do in a setting like that, so they were really skeptical, more so than I think they should have been, of what he could do. And the patient really was quite knowledgeable about nutrition in a way that I think surprised the doctors. And so 
after he left, there was all this talk about whether or not he had some kind of mental obsessive compulsive characteristic in order to be that knowledgeable about it because wow. his expectations were just so low for him. I don't think that they were intentionally, I don't think they were even aware, aware of this. And so I think that's the kind of thing that can play out and can impact care. And there's one example I talked about where I'm a patient and a doctor sort of initially sees me as someone, I come to the clinic with a, a knee pain, but I'm in really sort of casual attire. And the doctor doesn't really examine me or look at me. And then once I tell him I'm a doctor, everything completely changes and the type of care I get changes. And it sort of was an illustration of how differently a doctor could treat patients in a, in a setting, you know. And I was with two people in, in the same uh, setting. These are just some examples of a bigger problem. When I'm listening to this and thinking about it, I mean, maybe this is an overstatement and correct me if it is, but what you're describing to me, it sounds like it may not be advertent, but it seems inherently racist. Being a doctor is hard, period. And so I think most doctors are trying to do things the right way. But here's the problem. So one of the issues is that African-Americans are often seen in settings where your doctors are most likely to be rushed and you have to make really quick snap judgments. And so if you're being seen in an emergency room or an urgent care clinic and you don't have a doctor who knows you, and since the first time they've ever seen you, this is where those sort of things can come up, where, where preconceived biases can come up. This is where people have to make really snap judgments. And so that's unfortunately all too often African Americans, because of all these other issues as far as insurance and economics, are being seen in situations where they're not being able to see somebody who knows them. I think when you, once you get to know someone, you're able to sort of break through a lot of these sort of preconceived notions and biases that we all carry in some ways. And so, and that's also a big part of the piece of the book. And I think that's where the, the big system part really impacts African Americans. So, you know, I mean, using the term racist or not, I mean, there are cases where, you know, doctors are racist, but I wouldn't say that by and large that that's the main problem. It's the bigger problem is this other issue that we're dealing with in terms of the system. So has Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, impacted the system in a way that's changing it for the better? That's a great question. You know, the biggest thing is for people to really appreciate, one of the things in the book I want to do is really appreciate how devastating not having health insurance can be for people. And, you know, a lot of times there's a preconceived notion that people who don't have health insurance are just people who are trying to leech off the system. People have all these sort of, these sort of negative preconceptions. But many people, as I illustrate in the book, are very just ordinary people working, have families, but they have jobs that just don't give them insurance. And that's a huge deal in terms of their health, in terms of what they can get. And it has devastating impacts on people. And so I support the idea of expanding health insurance for sure. I think, you know, even the term Obamacare, right, it's so politicized, right? You know, people don't call it the Affordable Care Act. They call it Obamacare. So when you say that, you're automatically making it up. It automatically is a political thing, right? And so I think that's what happens. All too often, you know, a lot of states are sort of basically not implementing part of the, the act, and some states are. So it's, it's, it's not even being uniformly implemented. And so, unfortunately, many states that are most against Obamacare are the states, here I, I'm calling it Obamacare, the states that are most against the Affordable Care Act are the ones that have the largest poor and black population. So you have this sort of paradox. But I think the intent is good, and I, I think that hopefully once we can get it further away from tying it solely to him, I think we'll be able to see even more benefits from it in the future. You know, even that, the notion that we can't call it Obamacare, he owned the name, so people are just afraid to associate it with an African-American president. Now, your practice is in North Carolina, so where I am in Tennessee, the Affordable Care Act, we've done everything we can not to deal with it. Is it the same in North Carolina? North Carolina, so they haven't expanded Medicaid, for instance, in North Carolina. I think Tennessee is also one of the states that has not. There are 20 states that have chosen not to expand it. They're all in the South. There's a certain irrational sort of objection to Obama as president for many people. And it's based on a lot of irrational sort of thoughts. And I think many of the aspects of the affordable character are not even necessarily like liberal or left kind of, you know, policy. So this whole idea of it being something like that is very irrational. 
many of the provisions are actually originally from Republican think tanks and whatnot. So I do think in many ways it's an irrational um, opposition. But I do think, though, that uh, it's a great start, and I think that over the long term, it will, we won't be able to see the full effects of it for a long time as far as the benefits, but I think that it will be very beneficial. In the minutes that we have left, I want to shift beyond the book and uh-huh. talk about something else. Because you are a psychiatrist, you know, we've just had another mass shooting in Oregon. These things are happening every month and a half or something like that. I forgot what the statistic actually is. I just want to get your take, not on this specific event, but just on the level of violence in the United States. You see a lot of patients. You obviously are well-read and you understand the sociology of American societies. So not just physical violence, but you know the emotional violence that you probably see with your patients, the verbal violence, the bullying, the cyber violence that goes on. We use violence to sell newspapers and video games and movies and television shows. Absolutely. When you look at the mental health or ill health of the United States with all of this violence, if we could put the U.S. on the couch, would you say, oh, my God, I'm dealing with a crazy person? What is the yeah, mental I mean, state of America? Yeah, there's a lot of issues. You talk about the celebration of violence, and that's a huge part. I mean, there's no doubt about that. You know, there's this whole piece about proliferation of guns. I mean, there's this whole idea of being, again, it seems it seems almost kind of uh, an irrational kind of uh, discussion, almost like it doesn't matter what the evidence shows. And so there's a whole aspect to that that I think is problematic, particularly in the way in which people who have serious mental health problems or criminal problems are still able to find guns in legal ways. I mean, so that's also, you know, in many ways is, is troubling. Do you think there's just a general insanity among Americans in general with this obsession with violence, even putting guns aside for a second? I mean, do you ever look at it as if America was a person and going, this person definitely needs psychiatry? Yeah, it's also reflected in our sort of consumption of things like drugs. I mean, if you think about the level of consumption that America has in terms of drugs compared to the rest of the world, it's enormous. It's disproportionate as it is to the violence that we have compared to the rest of the world. I think it's really a symptom of bigger issues, right? And so this is something I've seen psychiatry all the time. And it's just unbelievable. My intent of like work hard, but then play hard. I think there are other countries, for instance, with alcohol, they have a people where people drink, but they don't have the same sorts of pathology associated with it that we do. And I think it's, it's all kind of built into that American fabric in some ways. So I think the issues you talked about, there's no doubt about that. So there's certainly good that comes from it, but there's also this bad that we have to grapple with it as well. But how do we find the balance, right, between the good and the bad? You were talking to Terry Gross on Fresh Air not too long ago about your book, and you mentioned the stigma of seeing a psychiatrist in the African-American community. And I think your mom was not happy that you decided to become a psychiatrist, if I, if I heard that right. How does she feel about your work now? I think she was just more surprised. I mean, again, I think there's this perception that mental health problems were something that's for the white community. Because even when you talk about mass shootings, for a long time, people would always say, oh, it must be a white person. This is what people in the black community would say. It has to be a white man who's shooting up all these people. Black people don't do those sorts of things. Black people don't have those sorts of mental health problems. You'd always sort of hear those kind of things being said when that's not true. African Americans have mental health problems just like anyone else. But you sort of hear that and it sort of passes down. And I think that's often there's a stigma that black people don't deal with those problems or that we can deal with them internally. We don't go to strangers and talk about our problems. And so I think that was sort of the mindset that, you know, my mom kind of was embracing. But, yeah, she's very pleased with how things have turned out. Surprised at first, but, you know, she's happy now. (laughs) Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. 
Thank you very much. We are out of time. My guest today was Dr. Damon Tweedy. His newest book, Black Man in a White Coat, A Doctor's Reflections on Race and Medicine, is reviewed in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. And you can learn more about Dr. Tweedy at his website, DamonTweedy.com. Dr. Tweedy, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Thanks for having me. Support for this week's edition of Essential Conversations is provided by best-selling author and master energy healer Carol Tuttle and Dressing Your Truth, the effortless makeover program that unveils the true beautiful you to the world. Experience your life-changing transformation at dressingyourtruth.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston and our program coordinator is Alma Tafi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.